This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LeBlanc. If you've been to Vietnam, to Cambodia, to El Salvador, Ethiopia, if you've been anywhere where war once ravaged the landscape, even quite a few decades earlier, you've likely had the experience of seeing the ways in which the impacts of war stick around long after people put down their weapons. There are echoes in the political system, in the social psychology of communities, and of course, the impacts to the economy. One of the places it's not so obvious, or at least I should admit I haven't seen it in my travels, is in agriculture. When the war ends, it seems like farmers go back to their fields and the sun comes up and the rain comes down and and the harvest just gets started again. But my guest today says it's not actually that simple. And in her recent article in the American Journal of Political Science, Erin Lynn suggests that unexploded bombs create long-term threats to rural livelihoods. In Cambodia, she writes, the most fertile land has been rendered the least productive. Erin Lynn is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Ohio State University. Erin, welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Let's kind of set this up by just talking about the history of the war in Cambodia, and in particular, the sheer tonnage of ordnance that was dropped onto that country between 1965 and 1973. I mean, like, can we even put this into perspective? It was a lot. Yes, yeah, yeah. So um, during the Vietnam War, there was the National Liberation Front, which is more commonly known as the Viet Cong, and so them and the um, North Vietnamese army, they had built supply routes and mobile bases throughout the eastern parts of Cambodia and Laos that were bordering South Vietnam. Um, and so in retaliation, both the Johnson and the Nixon administration have decided to bomb both Laos and Cambodia. So in the end, the U.S. Air Force had actually flown about eight years of interdiction missions against these enemy forces And we ended up dropping about um, three times the tonnage dropped on Japan during World War II. We dropped that amount over Cambodia. So you wrote 1.8 million tons of U.S. Air Force ordnance fell onto rice fields and villages and people. And a lot of that exploded on contact. But a a lot of it didn't. By 2001, 64,000 people had been killed or injured by unexploded ordnance. And that was about 20 years ago. But this ordnance still exists today. Yeah, it totally does. So U.S. Air Force um, technicians have estimated that about 20% or one in five cluster munitions actually fail to detonate upon impact. And so in Cambodia, it's estimated that there's about four to six million stray explosives that still have like yet to be accounted for or located, which is how we get to these horrifying statistics of, you know, two or more civilians being killed or injured by unexploded bombs or munitions every day. And about 28% of those casualties are children. I've been to Cambodia. This did not occur to me why some of these bombs did not go off at the time. But in your paper, you present a really interesting theory about what happens when bombs dropped from airplanes fall onto, in particular, fertile land. Or or I guess I should say, what doesn't happen? What doesn't happen when bombs are dropped on fertile land quite, quite frequently? 
Yeah. So when we think about the types of bombs that were dropped during the Vietnam War, these are things that are like the Mark 82 general purpose bomb. This is commonly more commonly known as the carpet bomb and also cluster bombs, which are about the size of baseballs that kind of get dropped down in, in groups from these mother bombs. And these types of bombs have inside what's called a trigger fuse, which is designed to explode upon impact. So the bomb has to hit the ground with enough force such that the trigger inside is set off and that explosive ignition can you know, ignite all the way through the explosive material in the body of the bomb and detonate the entire piece. But what ends up happening is that if the bomb hits a surface that is soft, that has a lot of ground cover, that is flooded, that is very muddy, then a lot of these bombs actually will fail to detonate upon impact because there just hasn't been sufficient resistance at the surface. And soft ground with a lot of water that is muddy, you're describing a particular type of soil that is very prevalent in Cambodia, particularly among agriculturalists. Oh, yeah. I mean, the best types of rice paddies are naturally flooded from the rainfall. They can grow multiple crops of rice per year, so you have a lot of vegetation coming out of them. And it's really these most fertile areas where you expect the most unexploded ordnance. And by doing field work in rural Cambodia near the borderland, I was able to verify this correlation between high fertility soil and more unexploded ordnance just by talking to a bunch of farmers, but then also going back and going through various policy reports that also picked up on the same correlation. And what you write in your paper is that the best agricultural soils become the most dangerous because they're the most flooded with these unexploded bombs. Oh, yeah. It leads to such a counterintuitive finding because it's these areas that in some ways you would expect to be the most advantaged just because they have the best types of soil for agricultural production. But once they've been bombed, they actually become the least productive areas in Cambodia. And what I found from talking through um, farmers, as well as doing a large-end statistical analysis from these declassified U.S. Air Force records that documents locations of payloads, combining them with soil fertility maps and contemporary socioeconomic surveys, I found that farmers living in these high fertility bombed areas, being so fearful of unexploded ordnance, they will take these extra steps to protect themselves from the dangers around them. And they'll do things from limiting themselves to particular types of agricultural technologies. So using like a hoe to till rather than a tractor. That way they don't have to leave this like heavy footprint on the soil that can increase the risk of encountering a bomb. They'll also do more risk inverse strategies like limiting themselves to particular parts of their land close to their house where they feel safer and they haven't yet encountered a bomb, but won't farm the majority of their land. And these are things that were borne out in the statistical analysis as well. You talked to a lot of farmers. You wrote about one who lived in an area where the soil was harder when she was a child and, and she had never seen an unexploded bomb. And then she got married to a man from another province. Talk about that. Yeah. So there is one respondent that I met, and she was actually not from the village where I was conducting many of my interviews, which was on the border um, in Ratanakiri province in the northeast of Cambodia. Um, so she had said that she had grown up in Prevang province, which is further south 
and had uh, experienced or her parents had lived through the U.S. bombing. So the bombing had affected her own home village. But she said, you know, when she was growing up, she never had seen an unexploded bomb. She had just seen bomb craters that were left over. And when I asked her, you know, what was the soil like in your hometown? She was like, well, you know, it wasn't as fertile as here. Like here, I can kind of grow anything that I want. I don't have to add fertilizer and I'll have an abundant harvest. I don't have to irrigate the land. Uh, But back in my hometown, like the the soil's just rockier and we could grow fewer crops of rice and it was was harder. And so she said once she had gotten married to a man who was from this province where I was conducting the interviews and moved to his hometown, she was at first amazed by how, how lush vegetation was, how easy it was to grow different types of plants. But then she said, you know, one of the first things that I learned about when I moved here was that my neighbors had warned me, like, listen... They're unexploded palms in the ground. This is what they look like. Um, and this was actually a really formative moment for me when I was speaking to her, because it was, it was that moment when I realized that when you're farming in Cambodia, it's not like the ground is just full of dirt and bombs. Like I imagined I was almost in like a sandpit and I just have to not encounter bombs in the sandpit. And what it really, like what the problem was, was that when you're working in these soils, that have been bombed, you're not just encountering potential bombs, you're also encountering the remnants of bombs that have exploded. So there's like all of this scrap metal that's Mm. also in the field. And then there's also rocks that look very similar to rusted metal. So people see a rock and because they're in these areas that they know to be dangerous, they'll avoid that area. And then that becomes land that can't be farmed. Oh, totally. And she had actually shown me a cluster bomb that she had found earlier that week. And this was one that was risen to the surface. She had found it in this kind of wooded area where she was trying to collect mushrooms. And so she pointed it out to me and was right next to a rock. And I could not distinguish the two at first. Hmm. Well, and especially Um, I'm sure decades later, I mean, these things are, things have been overgrown. They're dirty. They're halfway buried or almost all the way buried. It's got to be really, really hard to differentiate. Oh, totally. And I have to say, it doesn't make the um, act of professionally demining the land any easier, because as they're clearing the land, deminers are encountering thousands of pieces of scrap metal that they have to treat as if they were actual bombs when they're uncovering them at first, because you're, you're not quite sure. And it slows down the entire process. Oh, and this is why you can't just run a metal detector over a field. Exactly, exactly. So the state-of-the-art professional demining techniques now, it's not simply buying like a $50 metal detector off of Amazon, which you can, and try to figure out which areas are dangerous. They're using laser detection from like LiDAR systems to find particular types and shapes of metal. But the thing is that you only kind of get one side of that detection. So you don't know if it's a whole bomb or a piece of a bomb. And that's why you have to be so careful. You wrote in your paper that locals don't necessarily have very precise measures of the density of unexploded ordnance in a particular location for all of these reasons that you're explaining just now, but they still develop sort of an informal coding procedure to identify safe areas versus dangerous areas. 
I found that farmers were able to find correlations and where they should expect bombs. So farmers had told me like they too had picked up on this idea that in more fertile areas, there's more unexploded ordnance. Also, but there's like more flooding near rivers, there also tend to be more unexploded bombs left around. And the other indicator for them that was really helpful was just having an understanding of the military history of their village. So there was one set of interviews I conducted where I interviewed some farmers that were living close by a former military base that was run by General Lon Nol from the Cambodian state military at that time. And they're kind of pointing out like, this is where the barracks were, that's where the pop-up hospital was. And so that entire area, they kind of just avoided because they knew that a lot of the military base was targeted by the U.S. bombing. And then once they kind of drew that informal parameter, then they started farming kind of five meters outside Mm. of that. You said you talked to a married couple who only plant considerably five meters outside of the cluster bomb area. So if even if you own a bunch of land, like let's say you own an acre, you own two acres of land, a lot of that land just isn't farmable. Yeah, that's exactly right. I kind of pick up on this idea because I try to understand in a chapter of my book that I'm writing that's inspired by this article, what are the agricultural adaptations or what's the variation in these agricultural adaptations for people who do live in these areas with high amounts or high risk of unexploded ordnance? And I find that like the majority of people tend to be very risk averse in how they farm and limiting themselves to small amounts of land. But there's actually a sizable number of people in these villages who either have experience formerly being soldiers where they've dealt with weapons themselves or as children, they've grown up around bombs and have just developed a tolerance where I've heard a lot of stories of people in their youth picking up cluster bombs and throwing them to one another as a form of a toy. And, and it's a lot of people with these types of formative kind of violent weapons experience that tend to be the most aggressive when they are farming. Um, and those are the ones who will often pick up bombs by hand and then move them or try to purposely burn them so they know that they can at least be detonated. Wow. So in the process of this research, you basically drew a map or a couple of maps that are sort of overlaid. You call this a sphere of fear. And this is where bombs were dropped and where they remain. And the correlation to very fertile soil is pretty striking. But the result is that this very fertile soil, the soil that would really like be a boom to the economy and, and individual livelihoods, if it could be used, is being farmed very inefficiently. And you were able to put some fairly precise numbers on this, the effect this has on on livelihoods. Talk about that. Yeah. So I find that farmers on these high fertility bomb lands, they essentially face this trade-off between their immediate safety and future yield. In econ terms, it's it's like they they shorten their time horizons and they're less likely to make investments with future long-term yield. And so it's these farmers who produce about 50% less rice and collect 60% less income than the counterfactual farmer. So a farmer that's on similarly fertile land, that land that hasn't been bombed. The impulse here is to think, okay, well, this happened decades ago in Cambodia. It's a mess, sure, still today, but maybe it'll become less of a mess over time. But the 500-pound 
MK82 warhead, which which locals in Cambodia call the the B52 bomb, which was used in the carpet bombing of Vietnam and Cambodia, is still being used today. It was it was used in the 2016 Saudi bombing of Yemen. Yeah, so that's the scary thing is that the United States we still maintain an arsenal of more than two million cluster munitions in the U.S. and one and a half million abroad even though we also have made innovations in creating laser-guided and precision-guided munitions. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that we still use some of these arms. So our last known U.S. airstrike involving cluster munitions was in Yemen, and that took place in 2009. And we sell munitions abroad, so we sell them to the Saudis. And just like you had mentioned, there is a 2016 Saudi aerial attack of Yemen, and survivors found the latest generation of American-manufactured cluster munitions. And American manufacturers continue to sell cluster munitions in deals that have been supported, if not brokered, by the Obama and Trump administrations. So I think it's really important that we see unexploded ordinance more as this enduring political problem rather than kind of this one-off historical phenomenon. Do you suspect that if you go to all of the different places in the world where these bombs have been dropped, you would see a similar correlation between fertile soils and unexploded ordnance? I mean, I know Yemen's very different geographically, topographically, agriculturally, but do you think there's there would be similarities there in other places? Yeah, I think that's a great point. A great example would be in the Balkans. So there's about 150,000 pieces of unexploded ordnance that remain in rural landscapes there from the leftover from the NATO bombing. And a lot of those pieces of ordnance are found in the forests around Sarajevo. And one of the most fertile agricultural regions, um, the Dobaj region is one of the most heavily contaminated areas in Bosnia, Herzegovina. So I think that's one area. Another, I think, would be in the Falklands, where you still have a lot of leftover unexploded ordnance left over there in not necessarily fertile agricultural regions, but they're sandy beaches from a similar phenomenon, the way that the sandiness also will increase the likelihood of failure of those weapons. And there are economic costs to all of this, right? I mean, if if there are unexploded ordnance on the beaches, those beaches are not usable for all of the things that we use beaches for. Same in the forests in the Balkans. Where are you taking this research next? There's a couple of directions. Um, So I do have a book manuscript that I'm working on that starts with this counterintuitive finding that I've um, framed in the paper in terms of this type of poverty trap that we haven't really considered, in which there's this particular legacy of war with unexploded ordnance and how it really creates a poverty trap within these fertile areas. And then the book kind of explores these other themes of, well then, how are farmers adapting to unexploded ordnance and what is the effect of demining? What happens when we clear the land? Can we effectively reverse the poverty trap? That's one direction where I kind of flesh out some of the follow-up questions. Another direction is trying to understand what are the effects of unexploded ordnance on soil health. And so one thing that we really don't know much about is the degree to which having these hundreds of pounds of explosive materials, TNT, RDX in the soil, 
for decades, more than 50 years, how that might leach chemicals and heavy metals and toxins into the soil and the degree to which the soil absorbs these things and they get carried along further in the food chain. That's something that we were able to conduct a pilot study for, just collecting soil samples within Cambodia and testing them. And um, I would really love to be able to continue that study to see if our preliminary pilot results carry through to some more generalizable trends. This will all ultimately, hopefully, culminate in this book, The Farmer's Battlefield is what you're tentatively calling it, which is a great title, by the way. Tell me where this all began for you. How did this become something that you wanted to understand and and became so passionate about? Well, Cambodia has been a country that I started studying when I was in college. Um, When I was going to Cambodia as a college student, I felt like most people who studied Cambodia were interested in either the Khmer Rouge or Angkor Wat. But I felt very driven to try to understand like parts of the country that weren't being studied as thoroughly. I honestly, at times, was just having a hard time figuring out what my topics should be because I think there are specific I don't know. There are specific things that most political scientists study, you know, democratization, voter turnout, vote choice, coups, I guess, being topical. But I guess I I just didn't know what my place was in the field. And my default was I just went out and started living in this village in um, Kampong Cham. With time, I was able to observe some farmers who were living amongst unexploded bombs and things just kind of fell place intellectually from there. When you were doing interviews with these farmers, you're going from village to village and meeting people. And, and by the way, I mean, like the people in Cambodia are famously kind and welcoming, but then, you know, I mean, you're, you are an American researcher and you're talking to these people about a deadly legacy that was left by your country in their country. How does that weigh on you? It motivates me, I think. I mean, the hardest, conducting interviews in Cambodia is tricky, especially when you're a political scientist, because I think a lot of the things you want to ask about, you really can't. So it's an authoritarian country, so most people are pretty hesitant to talk about political opinions, particularly regarding the incumbent party that's been in power since um, 1998. It's also a post-genocide country, so people are also reluctant to talk about their own personal experiences of trauma. And so I think by default, I, I found it easiest and the easiest opening way to make an introduction is just to talk to people about farming. <laughs> um, it just it felt so neutral and so so present in their day to day life. Yet it was a really interesting way to segue into other topics in terms of, you know, how people were learning about what seeds to plant, what obstacles were in their way from planting their dream crop. I don't know. It it felt honestly like the easiest way to get to know people who I think otherwise might be a little hesitant to, to share information with an outsider. Well, and this is true across every culture I've ever been to. Farmers love talking about farming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. If there's something about it where it's it's very hands-on. Like, you know, when you're in someone's field, like they can just show you things mm-hmm. in yeah. a way that feels the opposite of graduate school when you're constantly just being told what abstract things are. When your book is done, what do you imagine it'll be like to return and to talk to some of the people who who will be in it? Oh, gosh. I mean, to be honest, that's always been something that's been really hard for me. Um, There's something about doing research in the developing world where if you're the person going there and interviewing your own respondents, it feels almost like this one-sided transaction where they're telling me all of these really fascinating things and I'm, I'm putting them in a book and this book might have some kind of indirect effect if I'm lucky on helping them, but it also feels like this ultimately selfish act where I'm, I'm writing this book and, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll help me get tenure at, at where I am. But to me, there needs to be this other element of, of really more directly, I think, giving back. But I just, I find it really hard um, in Cambodia where it's not necessarily the most open, transparent government and a lot of decisions um, about land clearance can be more political. But what I hope happens is that at least the book can can shine a spotlight on the fact that unexploded ordinance is still a problem and hopefully encourage some more fundraising to help with the process of demining such, such a capital-intensive and time-intensive act. That's Erin Lin. Her work connecting unexploded bombs, soil fertility, and the long-term economic consequence of these things was recently published in the American Journal of Political Science. Erin Lin, thank you. Thank you. It was great to be here. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.